0: Subscribe and rate it five stars. And the greatest podcast. Whether you're listening or watching, remember always keep it squatchy. Yeah. And now your hosts, Cliff Berkman and James Bobo Fay. Hello, Cliff. Hi, Bobo. How are you doing today, man? Pretty good. How's it going? It's going all right. Kind of a hectic day, honestly. I, I got to work this morning and actually back up a little bit. Melissa dropped me off at work today. I don't even have my car today, right? Because her car's in the shop mm-hmm. um, from that thing where her car slid down on the ice and stuff. Oh, yeah. And um, yeah, it's crazy. So still so, so in the shop. We had some issues with insurance and stuff, but it's getting fixed. So she drops me off at work today and I get here and, and like, like an hour at, after I get here, uh, um, Connor says, hey, there's a lady out here with footprints. I go look at her phone and they look pretty good, like footprints on her property. I go and so when were these taken? Oh, a few days ago. They're still there. if you want to come look at them, like, Oh my gosh. Yeah. But I didn't have a car. So I had to call Melissa and she was at the store or something and she came, she's kind enough to come back and get me. And then we went out to go take a look at them and, um, out of the two footprints, we found where one of them was, and it was a boot, right? But, but I can see why she thought otherwise, of course. And the other one the other one looked pretty interesting. Um, it didn't look extraordinarily large, probably about 11, 12, 13 inches, somewhere in there. But it did seem to suggest a mid-tarsal pressure ridge, which is why I went out there, because I'm thinking, that's interesting. Um, never found it. Never found it. Um, even though it was a small area to look in, but I think it was because of the rain. We've had a pretty good couple dumps here in the last couple of days. I think it erased that one. And somehow the other one that wasn't as deep, uh, or at least defined, you know, survived a little bit better because of the circumstances. But yeah, had to rush back here after that. And now I'm here with you. So wake up, come to work, do a surprise footprint investigation out in the field and come back and hop on a horn with you guys. It's
1: been a hectic day so far. Well, glad you made it. Yeah, yeah, I could, I could use a couple deep breaths, maybe a beer. Well, take those deep breaths and hold on because we got a guest today that's going to blow your mind. I know who we have, and I'm excited about it, man. I'm I'm pretty stoked. This is lined up. I don't want to actually. I'm leading the audience too big of expectations. He's not going to blow your mind. It's just going to you're going to find it very interesting. I, I, I think that's true. true. (laughs) Yeah, we got. From the Bluff Creek Project, former California State Park Ranger, Robert Leiterman, a good buddy of ours. Robert, how you doing today? Pretty good. Thanks for bringing me on. It's nice
0: to have you on, man. Yeah, we've been talking about having you on the podcast for some time now. Um, and now there's we have a really good reason to, besides just hanging out with our friend Robert, who we don't get to see very often. You have just produced a book about your research efforts over... God knows how many years now. I mean you've been doing this a while, um, but but before we get to that, in just in case somebody doesn't know who you are because there's probably a couple people out there, can you tell us a little bit about yourself, your background and why you're so cool? Oh, because I live in a cold climate that really helps. Hey, I'm the one on this podcast with a bad sense of humor, Robert. Don't crowd me.
2: I'm sorry. All right. So, um I started out as a park ranger and my job kept me busy and in the outdoors which is kind of cool, but that also led to my official involvement, uh, which about following up on investigation of a alleged sighting at the park I work at. That led me to this guy calling me up, uh, calling me the Bigfoot Ranger. I guess his name was Bobo Fay. So he's probably one of the first guys I kind of ran into on that. And then I, I, I got on with Matt in the BFRO, got involved with some of the research. Then I got tired of that. Then I got involved with the expeditions, which was kind of cool. Then I kind of got involved with doing some video work on the expeditions, and that kind of led to doing more video work and editing it and putting together little research programs we were doing. And that eventually led to getting involved with uh, meeting Stephen Stroyford and getting involved with trying to find the uh, the Bluff Creek film site and a few other video jobs on and off and doing some research. And I guess that's a Reader's Digest version of it. That's very condensed. That's very condensed, actually. Yeah.
0: Yeah, very interesting. I guess we're done here. All right. Thank you very much. (laughs) Keep it squatchy, everybody. (laughs) Our work here is done. But, Robert, uh, that that first um, sighting report that you were following up on way back when, tell us a little bit about that, please.
2: Sure, no problem. The original report that kind of broke the Campbell's back, so to speak. Well, it kind of started back in, like, uh, Labor Day weekend at uh, Humble Redwoods State Park. And it had John Frey to show up. Uh, introduced himself and said, "Hey, you know there was a sighting in your park, and we are here to investigate it. And by the way, we have this ship speaker in the back of my pickup truck. Is there any place we can park and broadcast some alleged Bigfoot screams into the park?" Oh, that was like a holiday weekend. That wasn't always the best thing. It was like um, it was like uh, Labor Day weekend, which is pretty uh, pretty busy time. So, and then I, I got to follow up on that that was actually the sighting took place in August and this was Labor Day weekend. And so by September 23rd ish or 24th, I finally decided to go check it out. So I brought another park aid with me and we went to go check it out. So all we had to find the location was this photograph that was on the BFRO website. And there was an art, yeah, no article yet, but it was on the BFRO website. So in order to follow that, um, I took my park aid with me and we, choose that photograph, and tried to find the location. What we eventually did, it was on the river trail, just upstream from the uh, Burlington campground on the other side of the uh, the river. So we climbed up the hillside. We found the location that kind of matched. I found a cigarette bud. Then I found a strap to uh, Freitas' camera. And then we found this stump because, allegedly, this father and son were walking the trail. Son's shoelace came undone. Dad told him to, sign, to tie it off. While his son was tying his shoe, dad was looking upslope, and he saw what described as a half-naked, hairy individual up the slope, rubbing it, walking back and forth, and then rubbing its back against a stump. Well, that, that was the report. So when I went up to investigate it, and I was looking around, there was a stump there. It was an old redwood stump that had been burned, so it was kind of charcoal black, and on it was moss growing. But there was no place on that stump where uh, you could tell it was rubbed and moss, but the moss would have been rubbed off. So I found the cigarette bud there. I found the camera strap there. But this is like late, well, this is like late September. By then, a lot of the redwood trees drop a lot of duff on the ground. So you could tell it was a game trail. And it went past that stump, but there's like a spur trail that went over to a grove of about three little, I should say, smaller one foot diameter redwood trees. And the young rabbit trees have a lot of shaggy bark on them. Well, on this tree, the bark was rubbed, like about a foot foot off the ground to about six foot up. So something allegedly and obviously had rubbed against it. But according to the RP statement, the reporting party said that they watched this creature pace back and forth and rub its back against something, which they thought was a stump, but it wasn't. What distance were they? I'm, I'm guessing, I'm trying to remember now, but I'm guessing they're probably were definitely about, maybe about 70 yards. And that was the grasshopper trail. That was the grasshopper trail. And it's uphill, and it was open enough to see between trees and a couple old stumps, but there's still a lot of other older trees there. But you can barely make out that little gap in between the trees. So what they saw was like this gap, about 70-ish feet away, moving back and forth through this gap. And that was this report. So we went up there to investigate. We found, we found that something did rub up and down against that tree, and something was there, but that's about the farthest I could take it. So the original report was, they said it was rubbing itself against the stump, so I decided that that's not what really happened. So I went ahead and um, wrote an article on it through the, FBI, the BF, BFRO about my investigation, which included a few pictures so matt was so i guess happy to get that that he asked if i want to be a curator for the bfro i go what's that they go oh yeah you get to follow-up on reports but here's the funny part soon after that article had came out through the bfro because i wrote an article and submitted it to the bfro so when it was advertised i um I had a complaint from a, a non, an anonymous person in a little farther north complaining that the state of California was using tax dollars to fund rangers looking for Bigfoot. So As they should. <laughs> and then I got a, a deceased and desist letter from my uh, supervisor who actually ended up with the article on his desk. How did that happen? Anyhow, so it ended up on his desk, so I... Uh, had to, um, well, stop researching, spending any state time looking, investigating, uh, researching, whatever. But in the meantime, Robert had been giving campfire presentations on the subject for the last couple of years already. So I was doing research already for the, for the subject matter. But when my presentation was more tongue in cheek with a little bit of humor, uh, just bringing information up but not committing to, whether or not there's such a thing, but anyhow, so eventually, they find out that the article wasn't incriminating anything. So they, my supervisor, we uh, took back the deceased and cyst. And nine months later, lo and behold, I think a, a series called "Real Scary Stories," where they kind of took kids out and tried to scare the crap out of them. Anyhow, so I got a chance to go speak and be interviewed for this for this thing, real scary stories. It, they were in Crescent City. I got the green light. It's funny how don't you talk about it till hey, we're going to have you talk about it. But the catch was I can only answer the questions that they agreed upon being the department, right? So I show up at the interview and it's the sun is setting in the background. I'm in my clean white patrol car. I have my Stetson on. I'm sharp. I actually took a bath for that shaved and I'm sitting there the Sun's sitting behind me and it was beautiful the sunlight reflecting off the white of the car and they're interviewing me and then they come up with these questions and I said oh, I'm sorry I can't answer that nope I can't answer that I can't answer that I can't answer that so I have, needless to say I never made I was scrubbed but there's the other gentleman that had some uh, castings with hair fibers stuck to it and I got to watch him being interviewed but that, that's kind of a, a A short version of that usually long-winded story I talk about. But anyhow, so that's the first investigation, I guess you want to call that, that I did as a Bigfoot investigator.
0: And you must have found it fairly compelling because here you are all those many years later still involved in the subject to some degree. Um, Have you ever come down um, solidly on either side, whether you think these things are absolutely real or absolutely not? Or are you just kind of an open-minded guy exploring
2: the subject and seeing what comes from it? Well, I'm still open-minded on it. I, as you know, I've done a lot. i spent a lot of time in the outdoors, and I've got some weird stuff that happens. And I've seen some weird and heard some weird stuff. But I think there's something that I don't quite understand, or a lot of us don't. There's something out there that are causing these things. But at the same time, uh, I have yet to see one walk in front of me where I can identify it. So I always joke and say, until I... Until I I walk up and shake hands with one, I'm still going to have to be on the fence. But I still can't figure out a lot of the stuff that's happened to me and experiences. It just makes me scratch my head and makes me want to believe. I don't want to use the word believe, but there's something more to this phenomena that meets the eye. Because I know you guys both come from a different perspective. I mean, you guys are very similar in your perspectives, but you guys, nobody has to convince you of the existence I'm kind of still skeptical within, still holding back a little bit, but still having trouble trying to understand some of the things I've experienced.
1: Robert, I've been with you on some of those experiences, and if if a, if, if Sasquatch turns out to be like documented, you know, recognized, everything that you've experienced with me would be perfectly wrapped up by would uh, Bigfoot would explain it, explain those things perfectly.
2: Yes. And uh, I'm not denying any of these things happen. It's just that I'm still trying to find a, an understanding uh, a little bit more of what's going on. Because, I mean, that one time you and I are on the hillside, and we're, we're up the hillside, and it was during the uh, Shelby Car Club. We did that expedition. And a few things did happen that trip, like like when, when you guys got basically overrun by, by something, probably Sasquatches, and you guys were chased out. And that was like on a Friday And then by Saturday – oh, yeah, and then the next day that morning, we found those foot impressions in the swamp, which is pretty cool. can't explain those. And then that Sunday, our clients are done, and we're sitting on the hillside, and you and I are sitting there back-to-back and uh, half asleep. We just cooked our bacon. We ate the bacon. We cooked more bacon. We ate that too. We even gave uh, Mel a little bit of the bacon, but I think we ate most of it. And then we get woken up by – coming down from the side of the hill in the swamp and I've never heard anything like that before so when I heard that I was like holy crap what is that so I look over to Bobo I go what is that I remember you look back at me you go you don't know I said Bobo you're supposed to know these things what is it now I don't think that was a deer I don't think those were, were owls I have no idea but I can tell you that that almost sounded like words and we got the smell Yes, later on, when we were kind of half in the tent, we got, we got something moved around us and we had that skunkish smell. So that's just another experience that I cannot put a finger on, but I always try to rationalize it and try to explain it away. I figured playing devil's advocate will help me find a better answer. And I still don't have an answer to that. And you got bluff charged at the, at the trail at the trail entrance. Oh yeah. So let me talk about that. That's kind of fun. So this is still the uh, Shelby Car Club episode. This is towards the end. Lots of times on the BFR expeditions, we like to save the Sunday nights for ourselves, so to speak. We send our clients away, and now we can be ourselves. And this was one of those. We were going to go up to that one location where a lot of stuff was going on. And so I was supposed to walk in with Matt in the darkness, and at the last minute, he he decides he doesn't want to walk in in the dark. He decides he's just going to leave with, I don't forget, I forget who he was with, but the other gentleman he was with, they wanted us to drive the car up and down the road towards Gold Bluff beach and stay in the car where it was nice and warm. So I was going to hike back in. And so I was kind of like, oh, great by myself, I guess I'm going to have to do this. So I started walking in, I got about a good 30 or 40 yards and something huge crashed around the brush. And as you could call bluff, charged me. I couldn't see what it was because I was going in there with lights out, because to trying to be as stealth as possible, and we had those really cheesy generation—was it Gen One and a halfs? Those weren't very good.
1: Yeah.
2: So I, so that crash and sound got a little unnerved. So I went back to the front because I know um, Matt hadn't left yet. So I told him, "Hey, there's something in there off the side." So first thing Matt does is like he grabs this flashlight. And he goes over there and starts shining the flashlight everywhere. And of course, after that it was it was fine. But he still left. So here's me, still half half like nervous, thinking I still have to hike in there by myself. So what I did is I hiked in and then I would shine the light, turn it off, hike in a bunch, shine the light, turn it off, hike in a bunch. And that's what I was trying to make my way to you guys. We were about what three-quarter mile in or something? Yeah. And then I I I marked with ribbons our way up to the hillside where you guys were at. But then you guys got tired of hearing Matt on the radio. So you turned it off. So here's Robert all desperate trying to get a hold of you guys. And you guys are ignoring me and I, and, and Matt's left. He's out of reception. I'm by myself. You know, there's something out there and I'm by myself and I have to make it to you guys, but you guys aren't answering your radios. And like, and I, now I can't even find out how to get up the hillside because my brilliant idea of, of marking the, uh, the trail, works in the daytime but those little flaggings i used disappear in the darkness you know i didn't they were color you know and color when you use that night stuff it just it just goes you can't you can't detect it i guess after I, i learned to put like dots or something so you could see it better so then i had to turn on my light and crash up the hillside to find you guys and then when i got there i was so happy to see you guys you were that's kind of a quick rundown and matt of course being matt moneymaker yeah that whole trip was pretty interesting Because when you guys went in there first, I was with Mel, and we took our clients in. And we got probably about maybe halfway in or almost three quarters. And you guys caught up to us because we were stumbling along in the darkness. Mel had the Gen, Gen 3. We had nothing really good. And we kept tripping over stuff. And you guys passed us up. You guys took the lead with your group and then you went up, and then probably within 10 minutes of us talking, you guys, we heard you on the radio. So, like, your position was overrun by squats, by squatches. You remember that? Yeah. That was crazy. It was overrun. It was,
1: they came at us from like three sides, just like making noise, like being loud, like, like get the hell out of here. But they didn't sound super huge. Like, and then when we found the prince the next morning, we tracked him back to the swamp there was 15 nine and a half and seven inch prints that yeah that's true i think i think the little ones were part of the get out of here kind of whole thing you know and and from from what i've learned since then is it seems that the small like you know like smaller than that like the five footers those size ones like you know young ones will break up they don't always stick with the adults like when they're you know, moving around you, like the, I think those little ones will sometimes be up, be by themselves, you know, like kind of to give the sense of, you know, more, a formidable force. Like there's more of them, you know, like around you, but it was, it was crazy. That was, that was, uh, that was my second craziest night, uh, for vocalizations and that sort of thing that I've experienced in over 30 years.
0: Stay tuned for more Bigfoot and beyond with Cliff and Bobo. We'll be right back after these messages.
1: Kick off 2022 with a better checking account with no monthly fees. Chime, an award-winning app and debit card, has no
0: overdraft fees, foreign transaction fees, monthly fees, or
1: service fees. With over 60,000 fee-free in-network ATMs at many locations like most Walgreens, 7-Eleven, CVS, you can access your money when you need it, where you need it.
0: You can also send money to anyone, even if they aren't on Chime.
1: Fee-free for you and no cash-out fees for them. Make your first good decision of the new year and join over 10 million people using Chime. Sign-up only takes two minutes and doesn't affect your credit score. Get started at Chime.com slash Bigfoot. That's Chime.com slash Bigfoot. Banking services provided by and debit card issued by
0: the Corp Bank or Stride Bank, N.A., members of FDIC. Get fee-free transactions at any MoneyPass ATM in a 7-Eleven location and at any AllPoint or Visa Plus Alliance ATM. Otherwise, out-of-network ATM withdrawal fees may apply. Sometimes pay anyone instant transfers can be delayed. The recipient must use a valid debit card or be a CHIME member to claim funds. So for you, it has to be a visual observation to accept the species is real?
2: Well, more than just a visual. Something a little more, I don't know. And I, I ask myself this very same question. You're asking me all the time, but thirty years of being a public servant, where everything you say can can you know damage the department, so you tend to not say what you really think. I guess I still I still float around with that. I still hold back a lot of my opinions, but I still have things I can't explain on that because it's not just I mean it's not just a handful of things. There's several. I mean. I, just, just talking about them now, you think about it, because like the time when, when um, not too far from the same location, um, Bobo and, and Bart went up, and you guys had something happen. And then a month later, I go up with Bart, same geographic location, and we start doing some uh, some uh, antagonistic techniques, like you'll do some vocalizations, you'll wait, you'll do some knocks, you wait. Well, we had this thing. We did a video on it. We call it the, the tree failure. The tree destruction? Tree destruction. Thank you. See, there's my mind again, always trying to find the word that's uh, less less committal, so to speak. Uh-huh. And so we, we do a call. We hear like seven minutes, and then we do a, a knock. And within three minutes of the knock, we hear it sounds like a knock comes back. Then we wait seven minutes And then we do either a call or a knock. We did the opposite. Within three minutes, the tree falls down or gets pushed over, according to Bart. And you sit there, you're going, if you look at something with just one part, it says, well, you know, there are some old trees there. They do fall down. But then you think about the past history of that area. Then you think about the activities we were doing that day. Like seven minutes, do something. And then three minutes, you get a reaction, and then you do it again, and you get a a different reaction. And then after that, that was it. Show was over. You know, if I had to do that all over again on that one when we had the tree tree destruction, we should have just left a recorder going and gave up our position and walked away and see what we got recorded. Because didn't you guys do the same thing when you guys had the tarp, you dropped the recorder, and on your way out, you guys got some sounds, right? yeah. Well, that's an interesting technique, because isn't that
0: more or less the same thing that um, Mike Green did in order to get his footage? He left the area, but left the camera running and let the camera do the work. And that's how he came back with that thermal imaging video of the Sasquatch in North Carolina. Um, and you guys were doing the
2: same thing, but with audio recorders. Yeah, it, it's a great tool. It's just like, uh, it's It's funny how you sit there and you're going, I'm a brave guy. I'm, I'm not going to let it chase me out of here. And so I'm going to hold my ground. Well, you hold your ground and show is over. Right. But if you would have left, the show was not over. You would have got followed out. Possibly. You would have got some more sounds going on around you and you would have some more evidence of the situation. And in my case, more coincidental evidence because you start adding it all up. So Bart always gets on me for this. He goes, Robert, come on. You were there. You experience the same thing I experienced. Why do you keep saying tree failure versus uh, versus uh, tree destruction? And I, I just smile at Bart and says, yeah, I'm still looking for that perfect perfect environment that I know is never going to happen. The perfect evidence which you'll never get. I guess I'm still holding out, but being a devil's advocate helps me ponder the evidence in a better way where I don't quick jump to conclusions. I try to Disprove everything as much as possible. So when I get to a point where I can't prove anything or I can't disprove anything, then I know I'm kind of on the right track. I'm being open minded about it because it's just a different approach of how I oh, yeah, think. Oh, yeah, sure.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And I think it's an
1: excellent one. Absolutely. Um, yeah. And then also, I was going to say concerning Bart, is uh, Bart's Sierra, Sierra footage. Robert uh, was in charge of doing the Recreation for that to show that these things, this thing
2: was in fact at least seven foot tall. Oh, I forgot about that. I totally forgot you were involved in that, Robert. Yeah, you know, I was sitting back the other day thinking about how many things I've got involved with, and I've almost forgot about. You know, it's it's a whole list of stuff. That's why writing things down or compiling the experiences, it's it's a great idea because you will forget stuff. So going going to this Bart's second thermal sighting, his first one in Washington he didn't have any actual video or re- a captured thermal footage of that but he had a great experience we when I went up there with the Washington with them we recreated it well not as I can exactly recreate it but I interviewed him talking about it but for Bart that was like recreation in his head because he got to go to the same spots revisit the whole thing and we recorded it which was pretty cool so we're gonna fast forward later in the day so we're gonna say like I I can't remember if it's been a year or whatever, but this same location in the Sierras where the alleged killing took place, the Smeha shooting uh, two Sasquatches, this isn't too far from the location of where Bart had this thermal footage. So Bart ended up with this thermal footage. We were scheduled to go to uh, Washington, as we usually did, to go join our brethren and sister in Washington and do some squatching. But Bart decided, hey, let's not do that. Let's just focus on investigating this thermal footage that I have in, uh, in the Sierras. And, Robert, I want you to tear it apart. I want you to break it down and tear it apart. Well, when, when Bart first sent me the top secret footage, I looked at it, and I, I had a, a ratty come over, and we watched it together. And I'm going, oh, look, that glowing, that's the fire. Oh, look, that walking between the gap, those are guys walking around the campsite. How freaking obvious is this? So Bart goes, well, I don't know. So I, I wrote like nine pages on why I thought it wasn't. And then when I went up to investigate it, I ended up writing a bunch more of why I, th- why I thought there was something, there's something to this. But the idea was, is we drove all the way up there to investigate it, and there was a bunch of us up there. And so we decided to do the reenactment for it. And so... It was kind of fun. You sit back going, okay, let's tear this apart. So you have things flying through the air that glow in a third, which means they're heated, right? Wally he was there supporting it too. I want to make sure he gets mentioned. And by the other guys, Roe and a few other people. So here we are trying to duplicate the aspects of it. So one of them was through that gap in the trees that Bart did his thermal footage, goes downhill, and then it gradually levels off and then continues downhill. Well, there's a gap between trees and there was a glowing figure this side of where you stood. So we thought that was a fire, but the fireplace didn't line up between the gaps in the trees. It was before it. And the fire was hidden on the back of the trees where you couldn't see it no matter what. Then you have this gap of trees and things move back and forth in this gap. Well, when we got Kip to stand in the gap and measure the size of Kip, it was about Kip's height. Kip's is 6'3". So it was pretty yeah. close to his height but his girth I mean it had a beat on his girth it was a lot wider than he was. And then there's a glowing figure. I had to stand on two ice chests to try to get close to the height of that. You know, I'm like 5 i five and not real big. But it was really wide and it didn't, it didn't move anywhere. And then there's the one that walked to the tree, the gap. Then you and then you have one that was way way on the back side of the campsite that passed through this gap of trees. We had this gap in the trees that extends all the way down, and you can look through this gap from from Bart's position of filming. You can look all the way past where his car was. His car was out of sight, but, but way down into the open area. Well, Bart put a camera, reconix camera, on his car, so anything that went around his car, around the cap, would have been filmed. It wasn't. So whatever it was, walked around the campsite, walked through those gaps of the trees between the car, which you can't see, it's just off to the left, and the fire, the campsite area. So that made me wondering, now there's three individuals walking around this campsite, and then something gets thrown and bounces off one of the trees, at first, we thought it was a bird, but then it, it, it didn't fly like it was different. And then there was something being dropped out of the trees, like, I don't know, a heated rock onto a piece of hollow logs that makes a thudding sound that's heard in the camp. So we went out and we tried to duplicate all these sounds and positions from the thermal position. When it come to, when it finally ended up, it looks like there could be three or four individuals that are showing up on a heat signature, that are walking around the freaking campsite area. Yeah, that are unaccounted for as far as people who were there, right? Absolutely correct. So it's just like, what's going on here? So I'm speculating on this part, but the guy who allegedly shot this, the two Sasquatches was sleeping on a cot by the fire off scene. Okay, his smell is there. You have one that's on a stump, a glowing figure closer to where Bart's filming, that doesn't move. It sits there or stands the whole freaking time. Does not move? Of course, when you look through the therm, everything looks like it's moving, but this thing is holding its position. Then you have something that's clearer passing back and forth between the gap and the trees. Then you have something dropping uh, a glowing object off to the far right. You have something throwing something or something flying through the air from the far left. So when, when you add up the positions of where where things are at the time you see it, There's three to four individuals there and you you can't pass through the camera position without missing any of them. So that made you think a little bit too. And when you, when you look at it, when you go there, the distances are a lot farther than you think. Like we're, we're asking Bart to do a thermal footage over hundred yards and it's not very clear. And plus, you know, is his, his, his camera wasn't working all that well. It wasn't, it wasn't as clear as I'd like it to be. Although, Bart needs to learn how to carry around a stick to stabilize it versus holding it in his hand. But when I we spent like five days investigating this, and my, my opinion changed dramatically by the end. So something was moving around, and that was totally bizarre. So we spent five days doing the investigation, and here's the cool thing. Uh, when we, were, we videotaped it and everything and documented it, and the, the investigation was, was done well. I'm kind of bragging about how we did it, but it was done well. We try to cover all aspects of our investigation. But we are all done, and we we had it all, all good to go. Everybody left except Bart and I. So our plan was to leave the camp set up and go hide in our own blind up the side of the hill. So we did. So we spent part of the day of throwing branches up, trying to make it camouflaged. So that night, our last night, we spent Laying in this like crater on the far left side on the side of the hill. And if anything was gonna come around, we were gonna capture it. We had the recorders going, I had my night vision scope, Bart had his therm. And the weird thing was, is while we were doing all this late at night, um, you know how you half fall asleep, you know, and then you wake up and you half fall asleep. But I, I heard women giggling and talking off to the far left. And I woke me up. I woke Bart up. Did you hear that? And we could not catch it in thermal. I could not see it in the night vision. So here we are trying to be as quiet and as stealth-like as possible, right? Uh, And we hear giggling. Like, who are you guys trying to feel full? You know, you're you're right there. So that was the last night. It it really makes you wonder because that's not the first time I've heard that either. So it just makes you wonder. As hard as you try to be as... As, as stealth as you can and be as tricky as you can and you still end up being laughed at, you know? Well, my, one of my mottos is you can't out Bigfoot a
0: Bigfoot. True. Uh, I have not been successful at it. But I've been on camping trips with you where you have been you and Bart are laying around like a, like hiding underneath tarps in the bushes. That's kind of one of your M.O.s. is one of your go-tos there. I think I've been on two other trips at least with you and or Bart doing that same thing, kind of putting sticks on yourself in a tarp and hanging low and everybody else is like having a beer by the fire. But where's Leiterman? It's always, oh, he's, he's under the
1: tarp about a hundred yards that way. It's like, man, more power to you. Yeah. Bart and Leiterman were underneath the tarp. When we had that sighting, Jamie and I in uh, at bluff Creek. Yeah. Bart and Leiterman were, were underneath the tarp in the bushes. We didn't even see him. We walked right past him, but they were, they were listening to this thing approach and we, I, we blew it. We, they could have had their own, I might've cost Leiterman his, his sighting. Yeah. Thanks. Thanks a lot. Well, you're you're a very very
0: thorough investigator. You're trying to get to the truth of things, and you have a skeptical attitude. So let's let's move on to how you utilize all of those things in um, your newest project here, which is of course uh, part of the Bluff Creek project's the whole thing. Is um, re uh, I can't call it rediscovery because it was never lost, but actually reaffirming where the Patterson Gimlin film site was. Yes,
2: that's an interesting project because. I'd be the last guy to show up at the film site on October 20th at one thirty in the afternoon or one fifteen, just to roll around in the sand to say I was there. But guess what? I'm now a zealot. That's something I would probably do now. But I didn't even know it was misplaced. I'll use the word misplaced because in 2003, when I got to be the guest speaker at the uh, the symposium, I I missed the Sunday and the Friday, but I was there, I mean, the Saturday and Sunday, but I was there for Friday. I was was a guest speaker giving the same presentation I give to the parks. I was the salmon dinner entertainment, so to speak. But I I got a chance to meet uh, Christopher Murphy at the top of the bleachers, and he showed me kind of the original book he was working on, Meet the Sasquatch. Anyhow, I think it's the first one. Anyhow, so um, I never got to go there. But what I heard from Stephen was that, and nobody seemed to the people that were there weren't as sure about where it was. and everybody you would thought would have known where it was was unsure of it, which is I, I find totally crazy. Now, now, of course, this is uh, way back. I'm sorry to
0: interrupt, Robert, but this is actually the opening of the, the Willow Creek China Flat Museum that now houses the original Bob Titmus collection. Um, it was, I think it was the the Sasquatch Symposium, and Jane Goodall was supposed to speak, but then she backed out. But it was pretty much a who's who of Bigfoot, and one of the greatest regrets of my life that I could not get away from teaching that that weekend to go up there and do that. But Bobo was there. You were there. I mean, you go down the list. John Green was there. Perez was there. but Gimlin was there. You just go down the list. Anybody who was anybody almost was there
2: yeah 2003 was a big it was big it was at the elementary school and i wish i could have been there for the sunday field trip but i wasn't i was able to get friday but um after after talking to Stephen, uh he he was talking about maybe someday to be able to find this place so i guess in the yakima conference he met ian carton and they decided they did a blood pack and they decided that they were going to uh, further investigate where the site was at in 2000, what, 2007, I still could have care less. Really. It wasn't a big deal for me. As a matter of fact, I think I want to say 2000, maybe two 2007 ish. You and Bobo brought me to that general area where the film site is located and showed me some big trees, but I can't remember which trees or where that was. It was, I was just like so long ago, but it was the same spot. Yeah, the two thousand seven fortieth anniversary. Yes, 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 because that's when you guys showed me that. But before that, we had the conference up at the uh, the, uh, the the bedrooms hall there in Willow Creek. But during that time is when I got to know Stephen Stryfer better, and he was talking about. I was like, as a, I was an informant pointing out all the BFRL characters for him, and we got to know him better at the campsite at Laos, when we got to chatting. And I remember staying up late, talking to him about, you know, it would be great to be able to find where this place was. I'm like, sure. But I think about 2009, I started getting into videoing. So that, so that, that was like, hey, you know, maybe I can videotape it. So I got involved in 2010. But then it was Ian and Steven were the big two pushers behind it. I said, you know, I like videotaping. I like interviewing people. Maybe I can get a good program out of this I can put up on the BFRL YouTube channel. So – my job was to interview these guys as they talked about the film site. And at that point I still didn't really care about whether it's found or, or lost or whatever. It wasn't that big of a deal for me. But it was during the process of interviewing these guys and following around and, and filming them that I ended up with some questions. So I started asking them questions from the back side of the camera. Then I guess I then there was like I had to choose this red pill or this blue pill. You know, and they go take the red one take the red one so I took the pill and then I just got a little more interested in it and then I become part of the group so now we have three people and I'm almost a zealot not quite yet because I'm working my way now I got to thinking how can how can everybody so how can so many people who are so important in this phenomena not agree on a location that's ridiculous everybody knows where area 51 is Roswell New Mexico What do the Bigfooters have? I don't know. There's some place along Bluff Creek. We can't all agree upon it, you know, because it's out there somewhere. So that got me involved. So about 2010, I started getting really heavy in the research. And then um, I started learning a lot more about it. I didn't know anything really about the the film site aspect. I knew about research. I knew about how to find evidence. I was learning about the behavior. I was learning about what to look for. But the trivial history part, I mean, I, I I read stuff, but I wasn't that versed on the film site itself. It wasn't high on my radar. Now, now it was getting there. Now it was like, hey, what about this? What about that? So I guess it took us a couple years, and uh, I'll break off here for a second, but both Bobo and Cliff were very instrumental in providing information that helped us confirm with the research that, that was a, that was the film site location. But we had a lot of people telling us you'll never find it, yada, yada. But I'm not good at listening to what people tell me what to do. I'm not good at people's – when they tell me you can't do this, I want to say, watch. I mean, that's how, that's how I am. And so I decided to be a good investigator to prove beyond a reasonable doubt. Just because it looks like it or it's, it could be, I wanted to say it is, absolutely is, and this is why. So we went through the process of our investigation, which was figure out the general location, the area you liked. We had five different areas that could have potential. And if for us just to say, I don't know, let's blow this off. Let's just go with the, the cliff site. I just felt the right thing to do would be to go to the five sites, have a checkoff list, treat them all the same, and just, and just eliminate them based on the evidence that you find. And a lot of people had preconceived ideas. So if we went over and took other people's research, then they already have an idea. We wanted to start over and come up with a, a, our own idea, which is being fair and ponderance of the evidence. And that was the process we did. The grid search we finally narrowed it down. That was like the same. That was the same year when Finding Bigfoot was there with Bob Gimlin and Bobo, and you guys did your thing. And I mean, that was great. Our job was to prove mathematically, aesthetically, that's the place. So nobody, like, I don't know, M.P. Davis, this is the same, a couple names, just go over and say, hey, you guys are wrong. It's over here. So we wanted to just prove that. So that was the process. So in 2011, in in late September and October, we decided on on that, basically where the Dehindus X was, we are calling it the Brackman site, only because we gave five states name and that was the Brackman site. We said, this is the one we're going to grid out. So we did north south line, which happened. It was just, which is kind of crazy because it's pretty damn close to where Bill Munns eventually put uh, Rogers frame number one position. We are like 35 feet where we put our flag to start from that position, which is pretty cool. So we ran a north south line. We got all the way to this big trees in the background through the jungles on the sandbar. And then we took half of that and we did the east west line. Then we went every 30 foot and put these imaginary squares. And then inside these squares, we have to hand draw in the artifacts, which are logs, stumps, root balls, whatever. So we know what we have. Because we figured that if you take the De Hinden's 1971 overview camera position from the side of the hill, looking down in the north westerly direction, And we take that photograph that Rene did, which I'm glad he did, and you lay it right next to this grid map, you should see the artifacts in a very similar position. That would be proof, right? So that was our project. So we drew them in, took us a few days to do that. And then when we were all done, it was my job to try to draw in a few more things and to line those babies up. And so we gave it alphabet names, right? Well, I ran out of alphabet matches and started using numbers or double alphabets. And at that point, there was no doubt in my mind that that wasn't the site. Although Stephen was like thinking it was good ahead of time. Uh, Roddy was feeling pretty good there during the summer of 2011. But in my mind, my name was on this. I wanted to be absolutely correct. And so I feel comfortable at that point saying it was. So we drew the map. We finally got Perez online with it before he, he didn't give us, he wasn't too, he didn't think we were very serious about it. Um, he wasn't so sure where it was. He gave us stuff to use for research, but he wasn't so sure exactly where it was. And so we took everything we could and we proved it, which only confirms what Bob Ginlan said, what Bobo Faye said, and what Cliff Brackman said. That, they were right. And that is the location. And there's no argument. End of story. You guys,
1: like Rowdy, especially figured out it was it was a twenty millimeter lens, correct?
2: Oh yeah, we're close. The verdict's not out yet because, well, let me tell you what we what we what we did this last trip up, which was uh, two thousand and twenty one in end of October, is we know the distances because Green had the information and uh, uh, Titmus as well, I believe. Yes. Well, actually, we didn't use his for that one. We used uh, a greens. We used uh, um, de Hendits. Well, I think Renee drew a map as well. You did. Renee had some photographs where he, you could compare which stumps, and he had he, he has this map, this picture of three fifty two, where he drew on the lines, the survey lines he did, and the distances he measured, and you can look to see the artifacts which stumps are in the three fifty two frame and the distances that were there. We did find out he kind of crossed some of his numbers over on the left side, but the numbers were still fine. Once we had that, we can determine based on triangulation where uh, Roger's frame 352 position was based on where Rene felt it was or Green felt it was. So we measured it out and with triangulation, we have that point. That point is off the upper sandbar by about six feet. When in 2012, when uh, Bill Munz came down, he only used one line And it was off by like nine, nine feet off to the side. But we used triangulation with two points. We were able to be more accurate and we pulled it more to the left and we pulled it closer to the edge of the berm, but we're still about six feet off. So we built a platform that extends the upper sandbar so we could stand on it to recreate that distance in position. We were gonna put a ladder there and and have us do a circus act and hold up Rowdy on our shoulders. We decided it's a lot safer to build a platform. So we did that, and when our practice was, we went out and put lights on the artifacts that were in 352 so you could see them at a distance, because right now it's still overgrown but not as bad as it was, and you can't see that far away. But if you put lights on the artifacts, you can see those lights from the Rogers 352 position. And so you take that and you overlay it on the 352 photo, and you kind of get your match, right? But now comes where would Patty be in this mess? How far in is Patty? Is she uh, 102 feet from uh, Renee's position? 108 feet from Renee's position? off to 352. So what we did is we had the camera, the similar model of camera, different lenses, three different sizes. There's the 15, the 20 and the 25. We had, we had, we had a, a, a reporter in, in uh, wearing a white hat and so he stood out. We, we would film him moving through the, the estimated patty path. Then we have them stand at approximately where we thought paddy was, and we're taking this and filming this. But the problem with us is we got the lights in the background, but it's hard to see the human being because the lighting is still dark in there. So based on what we did so far, it's a toss up around 20, 20 is looking really good, but could it have been a 15, 25 think not, but in order to be sure for, is to do this experiment again where we can highlight the individual with extra lights because it's dark in the trees and size it up again. I figured the end result of this at least we might be able to get a minimal height maybe of what Patty might have been based on approximate position because you could run a line out towards where Patty speculative position is and you can take that photo And just keep moving other five yards, take a photo, move another five yards. And you can lay that out on the 352 and see the size comparison based on that distance. But the neat thing is, is the lens lens size is the factor. Because if you could determine the distance, which we pretty much based on earlier research by Rene, if you could determine the lens size, 15, 20, 25, then you could estimate the height of patty so the question is though we know roger's position and we know the stump's position but now comes where's patty's position so there's a little bit of speculation on that but i think we can get close enough to figure out minimal height based on some distances and that might shine some light on it
0: stay tuned for more bigfoot and beyond with cliff and bobo we'll be right back after these messages
2: Patty's not as big as everybody thinks she is. Yeah, I don't think she's. I don't think she's as big as. Well, some people
0: know, or I I agree with some people's estimate. It's what I should say. But this seven foot three and a half inches thing is so off the charts wrong. Um, it is just so, and I think Kranz did a really good job um, in the second edition of his book that he entitled uh, "Bigfoot Sasquatch Evidence." The first edition was "Bigfoot Prints," but it's the same book basically. But he had a couple chapters at the end that he added for the second edition, and uh, and he clearly shows that the um, the, the NASSI, the North American Science Institute, uh, which is the the group that uh, um, did a study on the film um, after the Peter Burns project went away, um, uh, their estimate of seven foot three and a half inches is just incorrect. There, it, it cannot be reconciled with the evidence you see in the frames of the film. It just cannot be. Um, I think Krantz uh, is much closer. Krantz gives uh, Patty as a six-foot walking height than a six-and-a-half-foot um, standing height. And if you don't know what those are, please go read Krantz's book. It will explain everything you need to know. Um, and I actually have talked to Bill Munns, and he thinks that's about that's probably right in the pocket as well. Here at the museum, at the North American Bigfoot Center, I did an experiment, which is the same thing that Kranz did in his book, and it's also the same thing that Chris Murphy did in his, his chapter on the PG film in Know and Meet the Sasquatch, depending on which edition of the book you have, um, where we know Patty's foot length. We know that because we have casts. We've got quite a few casts, actually, from Patty's foot. And in about eight or nine of those frames, because Patty is not a human, she walks different. She has a different gait than human beings do. And um, her foot becomes purple perpendicular to the ground in eight or nine of those frames, uh, uh, while she's walking away. And you can take any one of those frames and put her foot right in like a, a foot cat. Or you can measure her foot. You can see the entirety of the bottom of her foot. We know her feet are about 14, 14 and a half inches long. And you can take that and just Photoshop the feet until we run out of room and it matches the top of her head. And it doesn't come anywhere close to seven feet, let alone seven foot three. Um, Here in the museum, we did a life-size version of one of those, where I took one of those frames, with permission from uh, um, Eric DeHinden, um, and I blew it up until until her foot matched the same size as her foot in the cast. And, of course, the cast is a little bigger. I took that into consideration. But there it is. She's six, six and a half feet tall, somewhere right in there. Not as big as everyone thinks. Although she is very large,
2: she's just not very tall is the deal. I think that's a great way. It's, you know, when I was doing the investigation and uh, measuring these things, because when I looked at the Hindon 71 and I looked at the uh, the cluster of stumps with logs, and that's where the smiley face is. So I measured every one of those big, tall logs, stumps. And and, and then my my brain's going, okay, you have that size, then you have the paddy and you're looking at it and it looks weird. And then you look at the big tree in the background, so you're trying to take that into consideration. And it's just, for me, not a mathematician, um, just optically looking at it, it's just there's just no way Patty is is a huge. I sorry, as tall as some of the higher higher heights. That's why I like the. If we could figure out a guesstimation about the minimal, that would be very helpful. That would definitely be very helpful because, as, as you know, when you're she's walking, she's not. Slamming her heels down and arching her back, her knees are bent, so we're looking at one of the shorter heights or the less tall positions: Yeah,
0: yeah, she a bent knee posture, she her foot is sinking into the soil about an inch, and also she's leaning forward about five degrees um, at the at the waist. So all that stuff will serve to shorten her. Um, which is why Krantz, of course, has the standing versus the walking heights because they should be different things. Um, well, they are for Patty, that's for sure. And if all Sasquatches walk the same way Patty does, or something like that, then that, that should be true for uh, most of the animals as well.
2: Yeah. So, you know, at, at first when we when we did the investigation of the film site, it's like my brain is going, "Well, let's just figure out where it is. Let's confirm it." Let's give credit for credit is due for the people who deserve that credit, who, who stood, stood by how they felt and where it was, and they were right. And we got all that stuff done. It's like, okay, are we done? What else could we possibly do? And then somehow we got involved with a camera project, and we're still looking at different aspects of the Patterson-Gimlin film. We're still looking at the lenses to figure estimated height. and So it's, it's almost like we're not done. There's still a lot of information to be extracted from that section of Earth. You know, what it reminds me of, Robert,
0: is a few weeks ago, Bobo and I did a QA and a for uh, this, this podcast here that you're on. And um, uh, a gentleman, I can't remember his name now, asked us, like, what do you, do, you, do you think it's even worth looking at these old cases to see if you can get anything else out of them? And I said, oh, yeah, of course, because I've been working on this Bosberg thing for a little while. And this is another excellent example. Think of how much we've learned about the PG film and the location, et cetera, just, just by digging it up again. Because it had been put to bed. It was a cold case. Uh, but here we are. You guys and the Bluff Creek Project in general have done just a fan, fantastic job um, unearthing some minuscule details that only nerds like us would care about. But we're here. We care about it. We're the nerds. We love this stuff. And I
2: just I think it's fantastic. Yeah, here's another silly thing. It's like putting up the cameras in 2012. We decided to draw. Go ahead and do that for game cameras. They want to keep those bigfoots away from the site, right? That's right. <laughs> we, we don't. We we don't hide the cameras. Uh, I like hiding everything, but I, I'm only one member of a group, so they're not well hidden. Dude, they're just strapped plain as day. They're,
1: there's no camouflage. That's what I keep telling Stratford. I'm like, dude, they're they're hit to the things anyways. Then when you don't camouflage them at all i mean it doesn't affect a bear or a deer but it does a bigfoot or a, a human you know but i was
0: down there and i saw them all i wanted to move them around and put them in different positions because like i would there be a clear record of me doing so i just thought it'd be funny I was also gonna run in front of the cameras naked, but then I realized I can't trust any of you guys not to put that stuff online.
2: <laughs> We're friends, aren't we?
0: <laughs> yeah, but I don't trust you. There's a big difference. I trust you to my life, but not with pictures of me running naked in front of cameras at the PG site. Well, that's that's a good point.
2: <laughs> yeah when, when I, I did camera projects for uh, in the parks for years and I camboed every bit of our cameras were camboed out when we started doing the project here um, a concern was that vegetation would block the viewshed of it and I said well let's let's do it anyway but I was outvoted but that's okay we're, we, we are a part of a group we all have different ideas of how to do things but we still manage to work together but we did, we did get something that we weren't really expecting, is there's this rare animal called the Humble Martin. For the longest time, it, it wasn't doing so well. It was like um, believed, I don't want to say believed to be extinct, because people say that all the time, but is it really true? Some people still see it, but it was believed to be very, very threatened to a point where they hardly ever saw it and questioned whether or not it still existed. Well, it hadn't been seen in 40 years. Well, it was still seen, but not documented, so to speak. And Robert, to be clear is it, uh, did they think that it was
0: gone from this spe- specific area or in general off the face of the planet
2: they thought it was gone off basically the face of the planet the uh, Marba what well, I'm sorry the Humboldt Martin is distinctively in Oregon and in California, that geographic area for old growth forests it, it got it, it, was, it was a prized animal to harvest for, for its pelts and it got worked over pretty good in the '40s they thought it was pretty much almost don't know where they were. They, are, they thought they were gone in the by the 40s, but they were still getting a few sightings here and there. I think Oregon banned it. I want to say Oregon banned it first or California. I can't remember. But one of them banned them in the 40s for trapping. It says, you know, it's not good. We got to let them come back. But it wasn't until, I guess, till the 80s. They, one estimate I remember reading somewhere, they thought there might have been 40 of them left. I mean, you're thinking about 40 to 80 animals left. I mean, Talk about, you know, how many, how many do you need to reproduce? And if you have the same ones, brothers and sisters reproducing, are you going to have some genetic problems? So just like the, uh, the, the, the Thule elk, they were hunted down almost to a handful of animals. And then they had to do a breeding program to get them back. But they had to put implants into the females because they were getting this, this uh, short jaw syndrome. It was a deformity. So they put anybody, any animal that showed signs of this, they put an implant in the females so they couldn't reproduce. So they are able to get that out of the genetic population, but that's just a whole different story. But the Tulio came back and they're doing very well. They transplant them all over Northern California, so to speak. But going back to the humble Martin is they were still seen occasionally, but thought to be pretty much gone. But when we put the camera traps up in uh, 2012 I put one at the Rocky plug and I like to hang them up high and angle them down because, you know, as an investigator looking for bad guys, people don't look up. So you're thinking, well, that's a good idea. Now, now uh, I want to butt in real
0: fast. When you say an investigator looking for bad guys, that's, this is when you are a law enforcement in the parks, looking for people like growing weed and stuff in the parks illegally, right? Not Bigfoots. Bigfoots aren't the bad
2: guys. No, as a park ranger, uh, we're also public safety. One of my jobs was to protect the resources, and people were harvesting burls. They were taking wood products. They were doing other things, growing marijuana as well. So we were using cameras to help cover areas for access because we can't be everywhere for that. So anyhow, so um, I got pretty good at putting the cameras up and, and checking tra- and traffic and catching people doing crimes against the state. Well, that was my job. That was my job to protect the resources, so using cameras was a great tool. And, and hiding them was even a better tool. But anyhow, going back to putting them up on an angle, shooting this gravel bar by the rocky plug, and I know you guys know where that is. It's, it's uh, on your way to the M.K. MK Davis Bigfoot site. Anyhow, we, we got uh, this, this weasel-like looking animal uh, crossing this, this gravel bar section. And it's like, what the heck is that thing? Well, it was a humble Martin. And that was the first time we caught it on camera. When I was there in 2007, I, I was with a buddy. And we were riding our bikes down to the film site from Laos Camp. I know that's crazy. But not down the river, but down the roads. Either one's nuts. Yeah, it is nuts. But we were kicking back, having a lunch break. And I remember seeing some movement off to my right. And this thing was undulating You know, how they, they run. They kind of hop when they run. And they'd, they'd hop, they stop, they hop again, they stop. Well, it was working its way down to wherever we you were. So we were waiting. And within about 10 yards of us, which isn't cl- that far, because we didn't move, it finally saw us and went, eee! and took off and disappeared. But that was a humble Martin back there in 2007. And I'd seen it. And then I'd seen it again after we put the cameras up. But I've seen him twice on the bush. But the cameras captured from time to time, which is awesome. So... The Bluff Creek project was able to, through our camera project, was able to confirm a population base in the uh, Bluff Creek area because we see it quite often in the Bluff Creek on the film site going back and forth and downstream from that. So that's kind of cool. So I guess the camera project, which is a derivative of the Bluff Creek film site project, is still a project that's still producing some information that's beneficial for the environment and very educational.
0: Yeah, it's kind of almost a foreshadowing for when Sasquatches are proven to everybody to be real, uh, real animal, real species, because uh, uh, that, that will certainly have um, some positive environmental impacts at that point too. So it's kind of foreshadowing in a way that this uh, the, the Humboldt Martin was almost was rediscovered thanks to Bigfoot
2: and also you guys. Yeah, I, I can't can't argue with that. Now if we can just hide our cameras a bit better. Maybe we'll get a different outcome. Hmm. Well, you got to put pressure on the rest of the group then, I guess, huh? Yeah, yeah, I'm just one voice. Of course, it's funny because when you do something for years and then you become part of a group that's doing it again, trying to convince your other members that, hey, you know, this worked well for me, let's do it, that's always a challenge, but that's just the way it goes. <laughs> well, you're clearly
0: stubborn and tenacious and big headed like every other Bigfooter is, so I bet you can win out. Yeah. <laughs>
2: Yeah, so my, my, my suggestion would be, okay, tell you what, let's experiment and try a couple positions where the cameras are well hidden. Yeah, well, you know what, maybe you take a different, let, let them have the the, the, the
0: um, film site because, you know, it's been there for years and that's what they've learned. Why don't you go up and take like Scorpion Creek and do something like that up in that direction, um, a little bit further up the hill, a little bit further upstream and see what you can get by doing something a little bit different in a, in a different zone.
2: Well, that's pretty awesome. Uh, because two years ago. We actually went up first time for me. We went up to Scorpion, and then we we spent the night at Scorpion, and then we hiked out of Scorpion and went up to the to the the Forks the Junction. That was a pretty awesome trip.
0: I bet I've always wanted to go backpacking for a few nights at the uh, the the you know the the upper reaches of Bluff Creek. I thought it'd be really cool, but I never have done it myself. So
2: maybe we'll have to make an appointment for that. I, I think it's worth it because we we went up. It was rowdy um Ian and myself and we were met with uh, three other guys from a different group that was coming up doing their thing and it was kind of cool but hiking up there and having your base camp and and you know there's I mean to get there you have to go in the most easiest way and some of that terrain is so steep but we, we saw um we saw a lot of bear sign we saw elk sign in a couple spots which is nice to know that there might still be some elk down that far it's being out there away from people uh, and and just listening and, and doing your job, you know, being quiet, listening, taking notes, see what's out there. I, I really enjoy that part of it. But I find the older I get, the more injuries start coming to the surface, old injuries by being reckless and young. It makes traveling long distances more difficult to do. And as we all get older, we kind of question whether we should be doing them. I know my wife always questions me why I should be doing them. Hmm. How old are you? Uh, yeah. I'm 51. Yeah. Well, you got plenty of miles left on you. Yeah. I I I'll turn sixty-one in July. Yeah, you're you were a beast until just a couple of years ago. I mean, you could go for
1: 20 mile hikes and the next day go for a 30-mile bike ride and then hike 10 miles at
2: night. I mean you you went for a long time full bore. I know. And there's there's evidently there's a cost of doing business, and I'm finding yeah. that out. <laughs>
0: Yeah, but you know, you trade it for wisdom, and that's worth uh, that's worth all the injuries,
2: I think. Oh, that's a good way to look at it. Yeah, I get you get a little wisdom, and then you get a little cocky. You think I think I'll write a book, and then you go here we go. And you know,
0: and Robert, tell us what what is the name of the book? I mean, I have a copy of it, but it's not in front of me, and I don't want to screw it up. Tell us what the name of the book is. And uh, this is a beast. This is a tome. This is a this is, uh, close to six hundred pages of meticulous research and telling the tale of the rediscovery of the Patterson Gimlin film site. Um, I've thumbed through it. I haven't, obviously I haven't read the whole thing. I only got it yesterday, but, um, it, it looks fantastic. I can't wait to sink my teeth into it. So tell us the name of the books and, and then, uh, people go out and check, uh, find, find it, find a copy for themselves. Um, and here's a plug. Yeah. We have autographed copies at the North American Bigfoot center, but you can also get it for cheaper off Amazon. I'm sure. I don't know how much they charge, but, um, we got to charge something cause of shipping and everything. What tell us about the book, please, Robert.
2: Yeah, so let me let me pick it up so I get and I read the cover so I know exactly what it says. You know, It's that
0: age showing again, Robert. Yeah, <laughs>
2: <laughs> you wrote the thing, man. You got to remember the name. <laughs> yeah, I know it's sad, isn't it? Yeah, it's called the bluff. The Bluff Creek Project. It's the Patterson Gimlin Bigfoot field site campsite, A Journey of Rediscovery. And it was kind of cool. It does have 615 pages, and it got a lot of photos in there. And we added a, a few charts and graphs and maps and stuff. They're not the best to see in the book because, you know, no matter how hard you try when they print it. No, you don't say that. You yeah. say they're fantastic, a lot of information. <laughs> <laughs> All right. It's fantastic, a lot of information. This book is heavy enough to smash things. You can put it behind your door. It'll keep it open for you. The Wind Blows It's a great paperweight. No. It, <laughs> yeah, the, the cover is kind of cool because it was taken by a drone, a Rowdy's drone, and we flew over the film site. So we use that for the cover. And a lot of people don't know this. But uh, Roddy was helpful, and his wife were helpful in designing the cover. But if you hold it up just right, you can see a silhouette of a Sasquatch in the mist around the cover. Oh, I'm sure
0: I'm sure hundreds of people will be seeing that because if you look, seek and ye shall find, even <laughs> if it's not there at the moment.
2: Yeah, I can circle it for you so I can help you find it better. There are dozens, dozens of blob squatches on the cover. <laughs> Yeah, so it was, it was kind of fun R- writing. It was kind of nice. It, it's like when you take a project on like that, you try to get as many people involved as you can, so it's a group effort. But the more people you get involved, the longer it takes to get anything done. Of course, you probably know that. But it, it was it was kind of a group effort to try to get people to get some input in it. But I, I was the guy who I guess elected himself to since nobody else wanted to do it to 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 write it. And so uh, a lot of it's the dialogues of our investigation. I like to throw in little tidbits of stories here and there because things happen and they help, you know, when you're out looking for one thing and you find something else, that's always a nice little story to kind of throw in there. So I put a few of those things in there and I enjoy writing it. It's uh, it was a lot of work. It's I think it's about three year project for the actual book part, but it's, it was over 10 years ago. The original idea of the book was to have a hard copy for my friend's who were involved in the process of finding the film site. And then one thing led to another, and now it's you can find it on Amazon.
0: And, and I, I'll tell you, Robert, I will always cherish my autographed copy. You wrote it directly to me. You put my name in there, your name, and you got Stephen uh, to sign it. You got Rowdy to sign it. I will always cherish that. Thank you so much. For not only the book, but also the efforts of you and everybody else in the Bluff Creek Project, um, you know, to, to finally put it to bed for once and for all. This is where the magic happened on October 20th, 1967. Well, Robert, it was great to talk to you Got to spend too long since we've hung out. Um, and I'm really excited about your new book, and I think uh, people should read it, because if you're interested in the Patterson Gimlin film and all facets thereof, I mean, this book is right up your alley. It's kind of a necessary book, just like when Roger met uh, Patty, uh, the Bill Munns book, or any of the um, books by Kranz or Meldrum on the subject, that this is a must-have if you are a die-hard Patterson Gimlin film you know fan, aficionado. Um, I got my copy. Um, I know Bobo's going to get his real soon. If he doesn't have it already, uh, I think everybody should get one of these things. So thank you so much, Robert, for coming on and telling us a little bit about the evolution and what led to your newest research publication.
2: Thank you. I appreciate it. I know it's been a while. I've been waiting for that invitation to come speak on your show. And thank you for finally letting me come on your show. It's been a. Pl- it's been fun. And you're right. We need to, get to spend more time together. Yeah. Thanks for coming on, Robert. I'll see you soon. All right. Thanks again, guys. Keep up the good work. All right. Thanks, you man. Too. Talk
0: to you later. Well, there you go, Bobs. That was great. No, Robert's a great guest, man. He likes to he, he likes to tell us about his experiences. He's, you can tell he's enthusiastic, and uh, he's a writer himself. He's got a good narrative voice. Uh, he, he knows what he's talking about. He's meticulous. He's I, I don't know. He say, he says he's getting old and stuff, but you can't tell. I mean, he he's he's like a, I guess he's like a dog. Maybe he
1: doesn't know he's getting older, and he just has all the energy all the time. Uh, he's got a ton of energy. I mean, he's got seven kids. He has a two job, well, one job, well, two jobs now. I mean, doing the book and then is teaching. He teaches police recruit at the police academy. teaches the trainees hand to hand combat. So he's constantly rolling and throwing and all that. And yeah, I mean, he's still he's still a, he's a force of nature. He is. All right, folks. Well, thanks for tuning in. We appreciate it. Hit like, hit share, and until next week, you know what to do. Keep it squatchy.